The laws of heaven and hell are flexible. Whether you go to one place or the other depends on the slightest detail. I know people who because of a broken key or a wicker birdcage went to hell and others who for a sheet of newspaper or a cup of milk went to heaven. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Ashley Hope Perez, who has selected a short story by Silvina Alcampo, published in 1959, called Report on Heaven and Hell. Uh, the story is only four paragraphs long, which means that we have time for Ashley to read it first in Spanish and then in its English translation. Report on Heaven and Hell is included in Thus Were Their Faces, a 1968 collection of Ocampo's stories translated by Daniel Balderston and reissued as part of the New York Review of Books Classics series. Ashley has amended the translation in a few places. Ashley Hope Perez is Assistant Professor of Comparative Studies at OSU and a core faculty member of Project Narrative. Ashley is both an accomplished literary critic and an award-winning novelist. She has scholarly expertise in Latin American and Latinx literature and in narrative theory and narrative ethics and in young adult and children's literature. Ashley is currently writing a book on the ethics of what she calls deformative fictions, something that we'll hear a little bit more about on this podcast. Ashley has written three novels, What Can't Wait, The Knife and the Butterfly, and Out of Darkness. Out of Darkness has received the America's Book Award, the Tomas Rivera Book Award, and the American Library Association's Prince Honor for Literary Excellence in Young Adult Literature. In the past two years, Out of Darkness has also become a target for those who want to ban books that deal with difficult topics. We could uh, just ban books from schools, books that deal with difficult topics. We could do a whole podcast about Ashley's experience with the book banning efforts, but today our focus will be on Ocampo's story, story, Report on Heaven and Hell. Ashley, is there anything you'd like our audience to know about Ocampo or the story before we begin reading? Well, and- I... I, first of all, Silvino Ocampo is one of my favorite writers, and so I'm really excited to get to introduce, uh, I perhaps introduce listeners to her work. And I think that because she's a lesser known Latin American writer, it's always useful to have a little bit of context. So Ocampo was born into a very uh, prominent and wealthy family in Buenos Aires. Uh, she was very much at the center of um, the Buenos Aires literary scene. So, you know, she, um, her husband, Adolfo Bioy Casares, um, was a novelist and short story writer. She collaborated with um, Jorge Luis Borges, who just about everyone has heard of, mm-hmm. um, and was really like one of the, um, has been one of the 
sort of giants of Latin American literature, particularly the short story. Um, but Ocampo was much, much less well known. And um, I think that one of the reasons for that was that when she was publishing from the 30s to the 70s, primarily, um, critics really looked to women's writing to do very specific things. Mm -hmm. They wanted to see emotional expressivity. They wanted access to interiority and a quote unquote feminine perspective. Uh, and that was very much not what Ocampo was interested in doing. And because she had a very privileged position and certainly wasn't depending on writing to pay her bills, I think she was able to um, resist those expectations. But it came with a lot of struggle and probably a lot of um, frustration with how her work was often misread. Um, so, and I would say that one of the exciting things, you mentioned the New York Times book review reissuing this collection, and there definitely has been an increased interest in Ocampo's work. And I think this has a lot to do with how what readers expect from Latin American literature has shifted away from the boom and literary modernism, you know, of the early 20th century, the boom is more the 1960s and 70s, magical realism. Now we see, uh, readers thinking much more about the kinds of challenging narrative projects that people like Roberto Bolaño undertake. So Ocampo fits in a lot better uh, when readers' expectations are along those lines. Um, but I would say it takes a long time to get over bad readings of a critic of a you know of a work, um, a body of work. And so uh, you know some of the objections that have sort of stuck to Ocampo's writing um, have to do with her sort of very strange syntax, sometimes kind of tortured stacking mm -hmm. of phrases, um, flat characters, anti-mimetic descriptions, um, absence of emotion, no interior access, and a lot of focus on objects. So I, I think actually Ocampo's own sister reviewed her book, <laughs> her first book of stories, and talked about the writing as being stiff and even hinted mm -hmm. at her laziness as a right. writer. Yeah. Um, so just... To, to wrap up these opening thoughts, um, I would say that these are qualities um, that are features of her resistant aesthetic, not flaws, as okay. they've been yeah. were treated, you know, and um, yeah. it's really important to see them as reactions against the tenets of well-made fiction and, quote unquote, good women's writing. But I think that it's also important to keep an eye out for o what Ocampo is affirming. And I would say that that is a vision of literature as a space where words have a right to do what they want to do and be what they are, um, not just satisfy the reader. And that readers are called to look at themselves and what kinds of um, work they're doing with the text or not doing. So this story that I'll read, Report on Heaven and Hell, distills, I think, some of those qualities. And while folks are listening, I'd say pay attention to how your own expectations shift, where okay. there's a sense of lost equilibrium. What do, how do we regroup? Um, what about the narrator and the implied author? And um, what does the story task us with? And how does it speak to broader experiences we have as readers? So okay, no, that's great. That's that sets us up very well. So okay, now here's Ashley Hope Perez reading Silvina Ocampo's report on heaven and hell. So here goes the Spanish. Informe del cielo y del infierno. A ejemplo de las grandes casas de remate, el cielo 
y el infierno contienen en sus galerías hacinamientos de objetos que no asombrarán a nadie porque son los que habitualmente hay en las casas del mundo. Pero no es bastante claro hablar solo de objetos. En esas galerías también hay ciudades, pueblos, jardines, montañas, valles, soles, lunas, vientos, mares, estrellas, reflejos, temperaturas, sabores, perfumes, sonidos, pues toda suerte de sensaciones y de espectáculos nos depara la eternidad. Si el viento ruge para ti como un tigre y la paloma angelical tiene al mirar ojos de hiena, si el hombre acicala, acicalado que cruza por la calle está vestido de andrajos lascivos, si la rosa con títulos honoríficos que te regalan es un trapo desteñido y menos interesante que un gorrión, si la cara de tu mujer es un leño descascarado y furioso, tus ojos, y no Dios los creó así. Cuando mueras, los demonios y los ángeles, que son parejamente ávidos, sabiendo que estás adormecido, un poco en este mundo y un poco en cualquier otro, Llegarán disfrazados a tu lecho y, acariciando tu cabeza, te darán a elegir las cosas que preferiste a lo largo de la vida. En una suerte de muestrario, al principio, te enseñarán las cosas elementales. Si te enseñan el sol, la luna o las estrellas, los verás en una esfera de cristal pintada y creerás que esa esfera de cristal es el mundo. Si te muestran el mar o las montañas, los verás en una piedra, y creerás que esa piedra es el mar y las montañas. Si te muestran un caballo, será una miniatura, pero creerás que ese caballo es un verdadero caballo. Los ángeles y los demonios distraerán tu ánimo con retratos de flores, de frutas abrillantadas y de pompones, haciéndote creer que eres todavía niño. Te sentarán en una silla de manos, llamada también silla de la reina o sillita de oro, y de ese modo te llevarán con las manos entrelazadas por aquellos corredores al centro de tu vida, donde moran tus preferencias. Ten cuidado. Si eliges más cosas del infierno que del cielo, irás tal vez al cielo. De lo contrario, si eliges más cosas del cielo que del infierno, corres el riesgo de ir al infierno, pues... Tu amor a las cosas celestiales denotará mera concupiscencia. Las leyes del cielo y del infierno son versátiles. Que vayas a un lugar o a otro depende de un ínfimo detalle. Conozco personas que por una llave rota o una jaula de mimbre fueron al infierno. 
y otras que por un papel de diario o una taza de leche al cielo. Okay. Okay. Yeah, good. And so, in English. Yes, go right uh, ahead. Okay. Uh, report on heaven and hell. Following the example of the great auction houses, heaven and hell have galleries full of objects that will surprise no one since they are the same things that usually fill the houses of the earthly world. But it's not clear enough to speak only of objects. In those halls, there are also cities, towns, gardens, mountains, valleys, suns, moons, winds, seas, stars, reflections, temperatures, flavors, perfumes, and sounds. For eternity gives us all sorts of spectacles and feelings. If the wind roars for you like a tiger, and if the angelic dove has, when you look, the eyes of a hyena, if the dapper man crossing the street is dressed in lascivious rags, if the prize-winning rose they give you is a faded rag and less interesting than a sparrow, if your wife's face is an angry bear stick, then your eyes, not God, made them that way. When you die, the demons and angels, equally eager and knowing that you are half asleep, partly in this world and partly elsewhere, will come in, disgu will come in disguise to your bed and stroking your head will give you the choice of the things you preferred during your life. First, they will show you the simple things as if opening a book of samples. If they show you the sun, the moon, or the stars, you will see them in a ball of painted crystal and you will think the crystal ball is the world. If they show you the sea or the mountains, you will see them in a stone and will think the stone is the sea or the mountains. If they show you a horse, it will be a miniature figurine, but you will think the horse is a real horse. The angels and demons will confuse your spirit with pictures of flowers, glazed fruit, and candies. Making you think you are still a child, they will seat you in a chair formed from their hands, also called a, the queen's chair or the golden seat. And in this way, with their hands interlaced, They will carry you through those hallways to the center of your life where your favorite things dwell. Be careful. If you choose more things from hell than from heaven, you may go to heaven. On the contrary, if you choose more things from heaven than from hell, you risk going to hell as your love of celestial things will denote a lustful spirit. The laws of heaven and hell are flexible. Whether you go to one place or the other depends on the slightest detail. I know people who, because of a broken key or a wicker birdcage, went to hell, and others who, for a sheet of newspaper or a cup of milk, went to heaven. Okay. That's quite the report. Um, <laughs> so why don't we start with that, the, the title, right? And maybe pick up on some of what you were saying uh, to uh, set it up, set up the reading, uh, maybe a little bit about how the title might be orienting the audience's expectations. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's it's a lot of fun that this that this story is titled a report because 
we have that designation, but then the narrator very quickly complicates or even subverts mm -hmm. what we might expect a report to do. So, you know, we would perhaps expect neutrality, but that dissolves by the second paragraph into a kind of accusation or recrimination. Yeah. And then, you know, the story seems to shift from pretending to offer information and instruction to inciting bewilderment and unease. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it in addition to the the genre of the report that the title signals, we also have um, resonances of a cautionary tale or a parable, mm -hmm. um, or you might say an anti-parable because yeah, it doesn't, right. seem, I mean, to, doesn't seem to instruct in ways that feel constructive. Right. Yeah, no, that's right. I think we start to look for, when it shifts from basic information and think about a parable, we maybe start to look for all right, what's, what's the takeaway instruction, right? And so your idea of it as a kind of anti-parable, I mean, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that the way in which heaven and hell, you know, we think of them as these binary opposites, right? Um, reward, punishment, uh, you know, happiness, uh, you know, suffering, etc. But in, as this un, unfolds from that title, heaven and hell don't seem all that different. Um, no. In fact, know. I think she wants them. I mean, I think that the if we if we think about the, what the narrator is doing in this report is yeah. that idea of like leveling them out so that um, heaven and hell are indistinguishable based on the qualities that were given in this in yeah. this report. So I yeah. think that's yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely a goal. And I think that the more the more I work with the story, even just in 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 going back through it for the our discussion, sort of thinking about what what does that mean? You know, what does it mm -hmm. mean to strip away the the value that's been Attached, attached to heaven and yeah. hell for us, right? Um, and angels, how that even angels and demons, right? I mean, even that set up, right? So they're equally eager, mm -hmm. right? But they, they both they show up, the, and they do yeah, the same stuff, right? right? It's not no. like they're it's not like there's they're you know rival. I mean, maybe they are in some sense, but they're, they're if there's a rivalry, it doesn't um, get played out in how they. <laughs> you know, act in relationship to you while you're in this liminal state, you know. You know, and even speaking of that, like, I mean, there, there's one thing I've noted, I noticed in rereading is um, when angels and demons are named, in one place it's demons and angels, in the other place it's angels, angels and, demons, and demons, right? Yeah. So there's this sort of, you know, there's a pairing, but there's a, there's, I, I note, note that as a kind of emphasis on the reversibility of these right. roles. Yeah, but yeah. to your point of, like, they're not being a rivalry, that, that um, really fascinating image of them interlacing their hands to make this, you know, to yeah, create a, a chair, chair right. for, the, for the dying person um, is really interesting because it's a kind of a cooperative gesture, right? Yeah, so yeah. I actually think that the, the, the narrator constructs the angels and demons basically being on the same team. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it's sort of we think about that and then, all right, who who's their coach, right? Who's Who are they representing, right? presumably God and Satan, right? And they're they're absent. I mean, they're mm -hmm. not named in, in the in the text. So, I mean, do you, would you go so far as to sort of extend, uh, you know, the the leveling to uh, th that between their coaches, between God and, and Satan? Well, uh, I think that there's 
like, I think that she's using heaven and hell in a subversive, playful way. You know, I mean, I don't think she's offering us a cosmology, you know, or a, yeah, you know what right, I mean? Like uh, a, a theological <laughs> intervention. I think if anything, I almost, I see that you know, the only mention of God comes in that second paragraph where yeah. we're being told, hey, it's your eyes, not God, who made these yeah. things the way that you're seeing them. Right. Um, and I think that that is, that has significance in that paragraph, but I think in a more general way, it's a subtracting of God from the equation. And I think, okay. you know, I, I, yeah, I right. sort of see this whole scenario as being, um, you know, her playing out this, this, this scenario that's narrated in the future tense, this is what will happen. But I think is supposed to be sort of seen as emanating in some way from the person, right? So you're, you know, what the mm -hmm. angels and demons offer you is an extension of your preferred objects in the yeah. in your life. Um, how they carry you is going to take you back to your experiences as a child. Like these, these, it, it, it seems as though there is agency in what the angels and demons do, but that their movement is within a sphere that's really about the person not yeah, right, not right. about the I rules of good and evil yeah it's it's so striking right because that we have four paragraphs right three of them are about heaven and hell and the angels and demons and you know that, that kind of leveling the second is this you know direct address of sort of admonishment um from the narrator to the narratee to the you right and it's about it's about your eyes um and that that then I sort of in a way creates a new frame for the paragraphs about choosing and the angels and demons and so on. You, you were going to say a little bit more about that second paragraph and that the address there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting. It's it's an interesting placement too, right? It comes mm -hmm. right. You know, we have that first paragraph that does seem to do some of what a report might do. Right. You know, there is description like to a kind of in i mean an actual kind of inventory here's what you find in the you know the great auction houses of heaven and hell um but then that second paragraph seems to be speaking beyond the immediate right. subject right. of the report exactly uh, yeah. you know if we were to if this paragraph were to be placed after the description of the presentation of the objects, for example, we might see, you know, the wind and the tiger and the dove, you know, as part of what's being offered, you know, as mm. among the objects, among the things of heaven and hell. Yeah, but right. I think that the way that it's located in that second paragraph, and particularly some of the details like, um, you know, the, the man crossing the street or your wife's face yeah. seem to suggest that this is about the effects of seeing in your life mm -hmm. now. And I think that then we're to imagine that those practices of seeing, those ways of seeing have significance for what happens in this imagined scenario of, um, you know, the demons and angels arriving at, at the deathbed. Um, but it is a really, I mean, it is this kind of, um, admonishment almost, yeah. you know, to say yeah. you want to, you know, you want to blame the, 
um, you know, the the rose for looking bad. It's your eyes. Right. Your eyes right. can't see the prize-winning qualities of this rose. Or, you know, I love the wife's face. I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, my face looks great. It's your eyes that make me look like an angry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. angry right. stick. Yeah, and, um, you know, the, the insistence on, right from the beginning, if the wind roars for you, right, mm -hmm. if the angelic dove has, when you look, the eyes of a hyena, right, it's the syntax and, you know, semantics are sort of underlining that idea of, well, it's, this is your perception, right? And so, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, and I, I, I was, you know, remembering how this, uh, one, you know, one of the ways that this that this always lands for me, particularly, you know, the kind of the sound of of reproach. I just always think yeah. of Ruskin and you know him writing on the pathetic fallacy. Yeah. And there's the line of poetry he cites in sort of taking issue with, you know, the attribution of emotion to inanimate things is. Um, the cruel crawling foam and his sort of yeah. approachful thing is like the foam is not cruel, neither does it crawl. And yeah. so, you know, you can almost hear Ocampo saying, you know, the wind is not a tiger, yeah. um, you know, and it's not roaring at you. That's that's your that's your eyes or that's your ears. Your projection. Yeah, oh. right. Your your version projection. of the, the mm -hmm. prophetic fallacy. Yeah, I think then, you know, this second paragraph and what you've been saying about it sort of opens the door to a sort of more general discussion of the narrator narrative relationship right and it goes pick up a little bit on some of what you're saying about the report right and you know you, we might think of a report as a kind of neutral thing here's you know i did my investigation here's my report you know <laughs> right but but this is different right this is this you know singling out you you um you know, do you feel like the narrator-narrative relationship sort of changes as the as the story goes on? Hmm. I mean, it it does seem it it does seem to shift in the second paragraph. I think that the, mm -hmm. I think there are several shifts. I think the second paragraph yeah. is where we leave or, or we begin to question if this is going to function as a report mm -hmm. or if you know in what way is is calling it a report a kind of strategy to set up to activate expectations that then the narrator is going to undermine right. uh, so what you know what's going on there but in the second paragraph we're we're being scolded and then we shift back into this kind of uh recounting of a a future scene future, right, right. that is rude. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's rooted in the, the narrator's knowledge, right? This right. is what, when, when, you know, X, you know, when you should die, it's the subjunctive in Spanish, when, you know, at the yep. time of the unknown time of your death, here are the things that will, will happen. happen, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, there's a kind of authority there that's interesting. So there's, there's the kind of neutrality in that first paragraph. The second turns very quickly to a much more uh, direct communication to the right, to the reader, right. to the narrative. Then, then the third, where the narrator is resting in their authority and, in some ways, offering a pretty distressing vision. Yeah. Uh, and then we have that shift at towards the end of the third paragraph that be careful, be careful, be right? Cuidado, which is 
you know, almost hilarious to me because you can, <laughs> what what kind how do you exercise caution uh, if it doesn't you don't you don't know which are the angels and the demons they're both disguised they're in like cahoots yeah. and all the objects are your favorite objects you don't know which ones go with heaven and hell and even if you did picking more heavenly objects can send you to hell so there's a sort of kind of like well what yeah. does being careful mean in that framework <laughs> right, right, um, right so it's almost mocking it's almost you know underscoring your powerlessness or the the yeah. the, the inscrutability of it i'm not sure okay. if it's it's not clear that it's arbitrary it's that you don't have access that's right to the right rules. yeah yeah um, I mean, and, and with the be careful i i start to wonder whether it's almost like, uh, you know, you and I are in on the joke, right? I mean, that that maybe mm -hmm. there's there's giving the narrative some credit for recognizing that, okay, you have no control, and actually these differences don't, there aren't differences, you know, where all this leveling is happening. Um, but be careful, and then, yeah, then what follows is, okay, if you choose more things from hell than from heaven, you may go to heaven, no reason, you know. On the contrary, if you choose more things from heaven than from hell, you risk going to hell. And now we get a reason, your love of celestial things will denote a lustful spirit. So, I mean, it's very, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's confusing. Ahead. And then the question is, all right, well, how does, how is the narrative How's the narrator sort of positioning the narrative in relation to it? Um, is it is it genuine caution? Is it irony? Is it irony that the narrative is supposed to share? You know those kind of things. Yeah, I think that the the be careful. I like your reading. I mean, I like your reading of that as a kind of. Perhaps this is a moment where the narrator is is saying, "Be careful," but you right. and I both know, right. "Be careful" won't do any good. I also, in in thinking about that moment in the text in relation to the second paragraph, yeah, you know, I I think about it if it seems it seems in the context of the third paragraph to be about be careful with your choices based on what's presented to you by the by the angels and the demons, right? But I also wonder if there's an element of, you know, be careful with your seeing. Like, be careful in terms of, um, you know, what what practices do you have in seeing your wife's face or uh -huh, in seeing uh -huh. the rose that's offered to you? And because there is, I mean, there is a way that uh, that second paragraph kind of suggests that. Uh, it's a little bit about ingratitude or a lack of appreciation um, that, you know, you your eyes can turn the prize winning rose into a worthless rag or, yeah. you know, something no more interesting than a sparrow. Yeah. So I wonder if there's a little bit of an element of the be careful that's about um, how are you conditioning your eyes on yeah. your way to this to this, this yeah, moment, uh, moment, to this yeah. seat? OK, right, right. Um, yeah. But 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 I think that the um, the last paragraph, you know, we talked a little bit um, about the you know the the objects being indistinguishable, and certainly in this last part we have a little mm -hmm. bit of the narrator's return to firsthand knowledge. 
right? Yeah, so right. this is the part where, you know, there's that question of, is, is it a report on heaven and hell where the stress is on objectivity or is it a report from heaven and hell where this is our, you know, our local correspondent yeah, who knows yeah. things about heaven and hell and can give us some for right. firsthand authoritative information. Yeah. In this paragraph, that bit about, I know people who, you know, ended up right. in one place or the other. Of course, it's still not clear that one place or the other is actually better, except that we've been conditioned to think hell doesn't sound very good. Right. And heaven is better uh, because the 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 reasons for going to either place are objects that yeah, seem yeah. to be neutral. Right. Um, but I think that this is, you know, the question of well, what makes hell or heaven preferable goes back to the thing about seeing, because if you have the kind of eyes that can, that can turn a rose into a rag, I think there's a, a certain implication that you show up to heaven and it will be hellish for you. I mean, it won't mm -hmm. be, there won't yeah. be anything to appreciate. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, okay. I think okay, there's nice. a little, yeah. I, I, the more I, I work with it, you know, I, I tend to think of Ocampo as uh, doing more unmaking for us, you know, what what we are trying to hold on to in terms of uh, orientation or certainty. Her stories usually uh, persistently unravel. But I think this is yeah. also one that um, does a little bit of raveling. A, yeah, with the, with the seeing thing in the second paragraph. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about narrator, narratee. You started now to talk about Ocampo um, and some of her uh, you know, purposes and strategies and so on. Can you say a little bit more about, uh, I mean, do you see the Ocampo's relationship to her audience pretty much the same as the narrator's relationship to the narratee? Or is there some kind of, you know, bigger thing that uh, she's communicating things that maybe the narrator isn't aware of communicating, mm. mm -hmm. the, you know, and mm -hmm. that we're doing her audience is doing things that the narratee, you know, isn't doing or can't do because of the restrictions of just the second person address. Yeah. yeah, I think that there's a definite frame. I mean, I think that Ocampo's purposes are quite different from the narrators and what, okay. you know, and within the fictional world of the story, presumably the reader is very concerned about heaven and hell, mm -hmm. whereas you know, or the, excuse me, the narratee is concerned about that. This, yeah. so, so the, the kind of setup of the story is this narrator has inside information on, to, on the workings of heaven and hell. They're going to offer it to the narratee, but it's not going to be helpful. Okay, right. And that require, I mean, for that to have dramatic significance requires the narratee to care. To, right. to think right. that to, to accept okay. an idea of angels and demons, to right. be, you know, interested in how objects correspond to your celestial or infernal, you know, Fate, future. Right. What happens? Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, and that you know, and the the we go along with that up to a point, but I think that Ocampo is is using that scene, okay. but not yeah. doesn't care what we think about heaven and hell. Uh, I think that that, you know, the the implied author here is is intervening at, and we've touched on this a little bit more in terms of creating 
an experience in which the reader feels uneasy and maybe even disempowered, disoriented, um, or at least we know that those are the yeah. things that the narrative is supposed to, to feel. We may not be worried about those things in terms of like the afterlife, right. but I think that we're supposed to, as as an audience, we're supposed to have share that experience and relate it to other aspects right. of right. the work that we do, I think, as readers. I think, right. you know, I, I said a little bit at the beginning about how Ocampo frankly, dealt with a lot of uh, misreading. I mean, a lot of pushback, mm -hmm. a lot of criticism. Her stories are unladylike, they're cruel, they're not, they're distasteful. Um, and I think that she, in some ways, is talking to readers who mm -hmm. can, you know, who pick up her rose of a story uh, <laughs> and see, and yeah. see, uh, you know, an ugly sparrow. Yeah. And, you know, she's, she's, tasking the reader with reflecting on what they bring to to the text the right okay yeah That's so that becomes this it. this meta communication sort of um over and above whatever the report is right there's it's more about okay um what do you expect what do you expect the report to do what do you expect the parable to do it's etc and sort of turning it back on her audience saying well yeah, what do you expect, right? What are you doing to what you get? Are you turning mm -hmm. turning things into? Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, yeah. and then like being insistent, you know, the narrator is insistent um, in terms of, you, hey, you're responsible. What you what choices you make are going to have consequences, but how the how yeah. of that encounter remains opaque. You know, the yeah. it's inscrutable by what the outcomes will be. And I think that that's, you know, I, I, I think it's a, if it's a parable, it's a parable about reading and mm -hmm. about the encounter between reader and text and some of, you know, I mean, I think it's an, it's interesting to talk about the, you know, being surrounded by the objects of our life, right? Our uh -huh. preferred yeah. objects. I, th I think it's an interesting figure for uh, readers preferences, like what, uh -huh. what we expect to see when we come to the text yeah. Uh, and how that shapes the kind of encounter that we have. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think, it, you know, the narrator is figuring responsibility in terms of these objects and outcomes. I think Ocampo is is figuring insistently across her stories, readers as responsible for the yeah. consequences of their reading. And so, you know, you don't really see it, it, the cruelty that's so characteristic of Ocampo's work um, so vividly here because right, it's, right. Oh, it's, there's a such a, the irony you know is is we're used to kind of harshness if there's if there's mm -hmm. irony present in some of her other stories the way that cruelty seems strongly implied but the reader is the one who completes the portrait uh -huh. um, is is one of the ways that Ocampo, in, you know, across her work, makes the reader responsible. Hey, yeah. you finished this, you know, you finished this portrait. You just, that's where you took it, is a little bit uh -huh, like, uh -huh. yeah, yeah, you know, she yeah, seems to yeah. say. So it's an yeah. interesting, I do think it has that quality of commentary. And I, I, I should say that in, although the, the, the English language collection draws stories from a bunch of different um, books and puts them together yeah. in, 
the short story collection that this story appears in, La Furia y Otros Cuentos, this is the second to last story. And so it really okay. has a kind of um, position that would potentially um, facilitate that kind of intertextual reading. Yeah, and I did and go like, back and look and and I'd say I think three or four of the objects link to other to other stories. They appear in other stories. Uh -huh, okay. Um, yeah. There's a similar like the the, the hyena eyes of a hyena uh -huh. is a description that's used for a character in another story. So there's there's an interesting way that that direct address can potentially, you know, go past the narrative to, to the yeah. to the reader yeah 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 nice nice um so finally i guess you know to come back to this um if in some way the reader ocampo's reader is frustrated right in the sense of well i don't know what the takeaway is oh she's turning on me to blame, blaming me for my eyes and <laughs> what i perceive and so on you know um, is there, would you say there's, you know, this kind of a antagonistic relationship between Ocampo and her audience, or is she trying to use that as a moment or something else? Uh, you know, just kind of, as we try to wind up here, is kind of mm -hmm. think about the big picture of author-audience relationships. Yeah, I think that I, I think that what has been read or could be read as antagonism is part of what I think of as her defensive okay. strategy. You know, there's a way that, you know, I talk, I, I talk a little about, I have talked a little bit about how she was positioned and there's a kind of, you know, defensiveness about her, about her writing, but also like a sense of protectiveness of the story's right to exist. Uh -huh. as they are there's their right to you know her right to write stories that do the things that they do, they do. and not the yeah. things that the critics wanted uh -huh. or her sister wanted for that matter yeah, right. um, yeah. and i think and that the defensive quality this idea of shielding the story from blame uh -huh. shielding the story from mishandling in way, whatever way she can is is has a prickliness to it that yeah feel antagonistic but i think that it is ultimately an invitation to notice our expectations and mm -hmm. you know recalibrate so so, yeah, so, so yeah. if you think about the some of the core gestures in this story if there's an invitation it's an invitation to look at how we look or look yeah. at or, or, right. or consider how we read and i think that if, if there's a moral, um, you know, for quote unquote, um, yeah, for, for readers, yeah. it's to to start retuning away from yeah. a preference for shiny and sweet tasting fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like tough love. I mean, not antagonism exactly, but converted. I mean, that's a little reductive, but 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 there is when you say ultimately, right? This she is offering us some some kind of an education as as you know we if we reflect on our reading practices and our expectations and so on yeah and that's why yeah. i mean i i think of her work as paradigmatic instance of deformative fiction because yeah. it enacts that kind of a pedagogy so okay. you know uh, the idea of a parable as inviting you into understanding and sort of making you more and more capable of the kind of work with the text or with a, a belief system that you need to be able to do 
formation, right? The reader being mm-hmm. formed by the text. Deformative fictions unmake. And so right. it's a kind okay. of, it, it, it is the kind of thing, you know, you mentioned tough love, but maybe it's more the kind of thing of you, you can't rebuild a better way of reading or a more sensitive and curious way of reading without first taking stock of all, you know, yeah, what's good. limiting uh-huh. about having an appetite for, you know, I want to read the things that make me feel the way I want to read. Um, you have to unmake that. And I think that Ocampo's yeah. stories do that do work that. of unmaking, but with an in- with the outcome of offering us back the resources we have as readers to remake something uh, yeah, that can tackle texts that don't do what we want them to do. Uh-huh. Terrific. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a nice way to um, come to an end. Um, so thank you so much, Ashley. This was a lot of fun. And My I think pleasure. Quite educational for me. Uh, <laughs> I also want to thank our listeners uh, and just let you know we're happy to receive feedback uh, about our podcast via email, project narrative, uh, one word, at osu.edu. Um, also on Twitter, where our handle is at PN Ohio State. And finally, a coming attraction. The guest for our next p- podcast will be Frederick Aldama, who will read and discuss. Who the old courtesans are a continuity of parks. Great. Thank story. you all. <laughs> <laughs>